0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Bus Driver Experience, episode 26, I believe this is going to be. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Real quick, the show is brought to you by Ambry Gardens. Ambry Gardens CBD, a next-generation hemp-driven CBD product that will demonstrate rapid delivery and greater efficacy for more, for more comfortable living and well-being to all that they serve. Uh, I connected with these... Uh, people a few weeks back. And so far I've been totally amazed by the products. Uh, I'm back on CBD. I'm using it. Um, not just for skin and lotions. Um, but also for the healing benefits and recovery processes. Cause even in this quarantine, I'm still training like an animal. I'm still training, um, flipping tires, got sledgehammers into tires, doing some crazy stuff over here at home. And, um, you know, finding additional ways to prevent from being sick, um, and I've had a great run with the products thus far. I'm really happy uh, I'm on board with the team, and and you use promo code bus DRIVER, you're going to get 25% discount on any and all products over at Ambry Gardens. So far, I've used the Deep Rub, and I've used the Nano 150, as well as the uh, tattoo lotion for my tattoos. And like I said, so far, no complaints, only positives to say. So, I definitely highly recommend you use the products and go ahead and you help support the show. Uh, and you get a little discount with promo code bus driver B U S D R I V E E R. And with that, my guest today, Matt Leifer, hails from the UK. He is currently assistant professor of physics and Schmidt College of Science and Technology at Chapman University out here in California and is a member of the Institute of Quantum Studies. Um, Matt studies quantum mechanics and quantum information and everything on the quantum level uh we had a deep conversation deep in terms of level that a lay person like myself can grasp and what there is to know and understand about quantum mechanics quantum theory um and we found out a lot of things uh i learned a lot of things about that overlap in terms of like cryptography cryptography which i'm sure some people know is um the masking or concealing of messages, um, which is used for banking transaction, espionage, spying, uh, national defense. So we cover a lot of topics. We really get into the thick of it in terms of cryptography towards the end of the episode. And there is a lot to unpack. It's definitely one show, one episode I'm going to be listening to over again to learn from. I'm looking forward to having Matt back on the show. Go check out his newsletter, which I've uh, subscribed to for a weekly newsletter. It is some great stuff. And that'll be over at mattlifer.info. That stuff's going to be in the show notes as well. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. So let's give it up for Matt no Lifer. Okay. But welcome to the Bus Driver Experience, everybody. If you're watching us on YouTube, uh, welcome to the show. It's after the case. Uh, welcome to the Bus Driver Experience. I'm joined by physicist, mathematician, uh, theoretical physicist, Matthew Leifer from um, Chapman University. Matt, what's going on today? How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing?
0: Pretty fantastic. Um, you yeah, know, sucks we're in a global pandemic, but yes. I'm, a- I'm actually pretty happy that everybody's treating it pretty well everybody's not freaking out too much
1: yeah it could be worse things aren't too bad here in california i think we've had pretty good uh leadership at least here
0: yeah we've uh you, you know everybody uh puts uh even negative comment uh connotations on the on the trump administration you know but i just don't think anybody really knows how to has experienced a pandemic you know it's 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 something we haven't experienced at least in our generation in our time and you know trying to act and counteract the best situations possible you know luckily i think our governor here has done a great job um doing what we can do with it but uh you know people are getting antsy people are freaking out and yeah um but this is reality this is the universe that we live in yeah (laughs) the universe we seem to blast off into but um you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad I got to talk to you because it's just really interesting. I would, and I would love to hear, you know, your take as a physicist, mathematician, you know, how are you looking at the world? How are you looking at reality itself during, you know, a pandemic and everything happening?
1: Yeah, well, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> it's, it's weird because, you know, the research I normally do is, is like fairly abstract, fairly, um, you know, esoteric to some people. and uh, And there I am you know, sitting on, uh, sitting teaching classes on Zoom or whatever, and uh, talking about, uh, you know, the, ne- the fundamental nature of reality. And, uh, you know, in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, well, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and, uh, and you know, people are dying and I'm a scientist. So what am I doing? Talking about, uh, talking about the nature of reality. But that's, uh, you know, that's what's, uh, that's what I decided to specialize in. And uh, I think that most scientists in this situation have a, a sort of a natural, you know, as a scientist you want to sort of understand what's going on. That's your job, like understanding things. So when this happens, like everybody's natural reaction is to say, oh, well, what's going on with the pandemic? Let me, let me start to become an epidemiologist all of a sudden and, and sit in my armchair and do mathematical models and things like that. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of that, um, with my colleagues. Uh, you know, so, so the natural inclination is to want to understand what's going on and then also to want to um, try and do something about it. Um, so um, you know, I, I realized that my skill set isn't exactly the, the, right, <laughs> the right one for, for doing that. but you know I did uh, you know when this started, I did tell my research group here um, if you want to go off and do uh, research on COVID-19 instead of your usual quantum physics, go ahead and do that. Um, and I also did uh, try to start a website where I collected links where people could help with research, like scientists. Because I think that, you know, one of the things that we do is we, um, you know, physicists, physicists and mathematicians in general, we're pretty arrogant guys, right? We think that, we think that all the other sciences are like easy and, <laughs> and uh, you know, we could do a much better job so, um, so the natural reaction is to say, oh, they're doing mathematical models. I'm a physicist, I can do a better job. But I think uh, we're better off like working with the people who are actual es- experts on the topic. So um, there's a lot of ways of doing that. So I started a, a website called uh, docovidresearch.org. And uh, that's supposed to be collecting links where you can help out with research. It's really primarily designed for scientists to go on. Um, and it's a wiki so if you find out uh, of a link where as a scientist, so you know as a scientist so I mean like if you have some expertise in in computing numerical simulations things like that you can find out places where people are looking for help Um, and that's pretty much all I've done on that otherwise you know things are kind of I'm keeping things uh I'm keeping close to like my my core expertise, which is uh, quantum physics and the nature of reality, uh, mostly. And uh, we're just trying to get on with, uh, with what we were doing before the pandemic started.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was uh, you know trying to look up and research and you know taking as much uh, information on you know I'd say physics. It's 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 a thing people have been able to have been teaching schools and people can comprehend. But you know, once you get down to the quantum. Theory and quantum physics, as like you said, if you don't understand it, that's okay. There's just it's just completely. Um, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> a completely a whole new world of rationale.
1: Um, well, I, what are you saying? Um, well, yeah, I mean, so I, there's a few things I'd say about it, right? I mean, quantum quantum physics has a reputation, maybe a bad reputation. Of first of all, being uh, amazingly difficult to understand, and secondly of saying like really crazy things, crazy sounding things. Uh, So in the popular science press, you know, you'll read things about um, quantum mechanics, meaning that there are multiple parallel universes or that, you know, there are um, influences that travel instantaneously across space or uh, nothing's real until you look at it, you'll see all these these things written. Um, And I wanna say that the, the key thing, to know is uh, the Uncertainty Principle. right? So you've heard of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, probably.
0: Yes, and that was exactly what I'm going to go to next. You know, it's but, to I, uncertainty. I have,
1: I have uh, my own take on the Uncertainty Principle, which is whenever you read anything about quantum physics, there's a, a hell of a lot more uncertainty about it than the thing that you've just read. <laughs> That's my version of the Uncertainty Principle. right? So it's, you know, the situation is we have this theory, quantum, quantum mechanics. It's a, it's a very uh, accurate and predictive theory. Um, pretty much all of modern physics is based on it. Um, but you know it's 100 years old, so almost 100 years old. And yet, you know we don't really agree. nobody agrees um, in physics about what it really means. What does it tell us about the nature of reality? And uh, you know, there's just a great deal of uncertainty about that. And and uh, you know, throughout much of the sort of 20th century, at least the second half of the 20th century, uh, most physicists didn't really want to admit that we didn't understand it, or at least that it was that it was an important problem to try and understand it. So there were you know, there's sort of an attitude of dismissing um, the questions about the foundations of the theory, and um, and so you know, that's one of the things that's led to confusion about it. But I think if you just sort of start from the premise that, you know, there's a great deal of uncertainty and by the way, that's normal in science, right? So most of the big questions that we have in science, we don't know the answers to. And as a scientist, you get used to the idea that, you know, here's a question. We don't know the answer to it. You know, we don't know, for example, um, the origin of, life ultimately we don't know you know there are many theories about it but we don't know the exact process by which life started on earth that's a big question that we have a lot of uncertainty about that's been around for you know decades and decades hundreds of years and uh, similarly you know in physics we don't really know what happened before the big bang right the 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 problem with quantum mechanics is that um, because it's a really well-developed theory we think that we ought to know (laughs) like, and we think we know more than we do. Like I think most physicists think that we know more than we do, that we sort of understand more about the theory than we do. But I think if you sort of just take a step back and say, well, look, you know, uncertainty is the normal state of affairs in science. That's what what we try and do is we sort of try and approach the questions, you know, rationally calmly using the usual methods of scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. Right. So, You know, you'll read all sorts of crazy things in the popular science media and they're based on something, right? We know that quantum mechanics is not, you know, as straightforward a theory as classical Newtonian mechanics, right? We know that we can't have um, as straightforward, a picture of reality as you have there where you have like particles like balls traveling around, um, traveling around in space and that's basically what the theory is about. Well, we don't have that for quantum mechanics, at least we don't agree on what the the analog of that kind of picture is for quantum mechanics. So that's a starting point. So, so, you know, people tend to get a bit sort of flustered and panicked when you start talking about quantum mechanics. But, you know, I say, look, the physicists don't know the answers. um, So if you don't know the answers and you're confused, that's good. (laughs) And the other thing I want to say about it is I think that The public in general has a better attitude this this is a very unusual thing to say in science right usually usually the the attitude of 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 the public is like uh you know very different from the attitude of scientists and 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 you know if you have to pick a side who's right um there's often the scientists but in the case of uh quantum physics the vast majority of the physics community decided that it wasn't really worth discussing the foundational issues in quantum mechanics. But when you write a popular science article about it, that's all everybody wants to know about. So I think the public's right in that, in that, in that uh, context, right? So if, you, if you're dealing with a theory where people are consistently telling you things like there are multiple universes and things don't exist until you look at them, of course, why wouldn't you want to be interested in that? right? Why don't you want to, why would you not Want to try and figure out um, what's really going on, and so you know that's I mean <laughs> that's basically the question that I'm trying to address um, in most of my research. It's it's sort of like you know quantum theory, WTF, and mm-hmm. let's try and apply the the science the scientific method as far as we can to 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 learn about it.
0: Well, I think is uh, a quote I heard from it. You know, it's like. Harnessing uncertainty versus the real world, and once you can harness uncertainty, like um what was it a, the coin flip um, like the someone did a, a coin flip study where they did it with like the quantum computer versus you know everybody trying to guess, and how many people would be correct if they were to guess, and because this computer can you know harness uncertainty and because it can move in a binary uh, on a scale between you know where we look at it as we're as humans and say it's either going to be heads or tails but this computer is able to move between <laughs> on this scale to predict and guess correctly 97 percent of the time rather than the person being right three percent of the time i mean does that have to do with just the way of thinking or just how these particles and how this this area of physics like works
1: yeah okay well i um, think There's several things to get into here. So, I mean, one one is just probability, okay? So, when you look at quantum physics, um, the first thing that immediately jumps out at you as being different from from physics that came before, um, is the role that probability plays. So, you know, in classical physics, in Newtonian physics that you learnt in high school, you know, if you know where a particle starts and what speed it's going, you can calculate exactly what it's gonna do in the future and that's, that's determinism. Um, quantum mechanics doesn't do that. Quantum mechanics only supplies uh, probabilities and, and it sort of, it's silent about anything else, right? So so if you set up an experiment in quantum mechanics, then typically what the theory will tell you is, you know, suppose there's, there's a possibility of a particle going to the left and the possibility of the particle going to the right. It will only tell you, it'll tell you even if you know the initial conditions of the system to as high precision as we know how to do, you'll only be able to predict a probability. So might, maybe it's a 50% probability of going left and a 50% probability of going right. So one of the questions um, about quantum physics is you know, what's the nature of those probabilities? So is it really? That there is just some deterministic physics going on, but we just don't know. Um, we just don't know enough, right? Maybe there's a there's a theory that underlies quantum mechanics that would tell us exactly where the particle is going to go, or is it that there's just some fundamental uncertainty in nature, right? So is it sort of irreducible this probability? We can't get rid of it. Um, there's sort of some fundamental objective chance in nature. Um, so, I mean, there's there's evidence for both sides. I mean, it is possible to come up with a theory that underlies quantum mechanics, that's 100% deterministic. Um, that theory is called the um, broglie bohm theory, and it's been known about since the 1950s. However, most physicists don't subscribe to that theory. For various reasons, one one of the important reasons is that that theory um, has instantaneous non-local influences in it, and in fact, <laughs> you can prove that any such theory would have to have have that. and that's um, that kind of violates uh, the spirit at least of Einstein's special relativity. So Einstein's special relativity, one of the things that it implies is that there's a speed limit in the universe. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So if you have a theory, that's positing influences that can uh, work instantaneously across space. Then um, you have a lot of trouble reconciling that with with special relativity. Um, so, and you know, you can you can in fact prove that any any theory of that type is going to have to have uh, instant influences that travel faster than the speed of light. That's that's Bell's theorem. So you could take that as as some kind of evidence. That really, these probabilities have to be um, irreducible. But there's, you know, <laughs> that there are long uh, debates in the literature about, you know, what the meaning of all of this is. So, you know, the bottom line is, you know, again, some people call me the king of uncertainty because of this. But I want to, you know, a lot of physicists would make very definite, definitive statements. They would say, well, from quantum physics, we know these probabilities are irreducible. I would say. Um, we don't know that for sure, um, but we do know that you know either they're irreducible or, the, you know, or you're going to have problems coming up somewhere else. And this is kind of the way it is. I, uh, one analogy I like is you know we have we have several different ways of understanding what's going on. What's you know several different interpretations of quantum mechanics, right? But it's kind of a bit like imagine that you had a ball. Um, stuck under the carpet, right? So you have a ball stuck under the carpet in your house. Um, and what you can do is you can move that ball around from room to room underneath the carpet, right? So I can have the ball show up in the living room or I can have it show up in the bedroom, but I can't get, I can't get the ball out because it's stuck underneath the carpet, right? So it's like you, you, you can move around where the problems are, where the, where the sort of issues up in quantum mechanics, what what seems to be um, the issue with it in different interpretations is different, but it seems like you can't really get rid of it entirely. And it feels like, it feels like to me that there's still something fundamental that we don't understand um, about the nature of reality uh, described by quantum mechanics.
0: Yeah, there's always so much (laughs) to unpack, especially when you talk about the uncertainty. And throwing even deeper uncertainty in there because it's, you know, you you mentioned it's interesting that in, if you want to call it just popular culture, that people are interested in, oh, hey, there's multiple universes out there. Hey, there's, you know, multiple universes. Things don't exist until they appear. And people are having these very, I wouldn't even call them far out thoughts, you know. I I want to say, you know, your, your imagination is nowhere near as crazy as reality that exists out there. I even think that's a thought Hunter Thompson probably, you know, had said or had before I did, you know? So it's, you know, even like the idea of the dream where it's just like, Hey, you start telling someone a dream. And then once you start explaining that dream to somebody, you completely forget what you're trying to explain because of the, of the thing you're trying to, uh, (laughs) even when I'm trying to say it, it makes no sense. So, you know, trying to relay that and present that to the world has got to be,
1: yeah. I mean, one of the things that is often not clear in discussions is that the, the crazy stuff that you hear, those are, those are mutually exclusive possibilities. They're not all true, right? So um, one on one way of understanding quantum mechanics, there are multiple worlds. Well, if you have multiple worlds, then you don't have that things don't exist until you look at them, um, because one of the reasons for having the many worlds is precisely to get you know, to, to get a picture in which uh, there's a concrete reality all of the time. And so if you have multiple worlds, you don't have that and you don't have instantaneous um, signaling. Uh, you know, and if you have the situation where things aren't real until you look at them, then you don't have multiple worlds, right? So, so these are kind of different ways that we've managed to come up with, consistent ways of thinking about the theory. Um, we don't know which one's true. Um, I may be in a minority in thinking that there is a truth, right? There is probably a correct way of understanding quantum mechanics. It's just that we don't know it yet, mm-hmm. right? What we know, I mean, actually, you know, we've made an awful lot of progress in this subject. It can sometimes seem like it's, you know, every time you hear about it, it's the same, same thing over and over again. But um, what we've made progress in, you know, between, say, the 1960s and now, between when... Um, between when Bell's theorem was first proposed and today. We've made a lot of progress in understanding what can't possibly be true, right? So we have, we have an awful lot of negative results. Like one of the frustrations of working in the foundations of quantum mechanics is not um, that you can't uh, come up with uh, interesting pro- possibilities, you can. It's just that when you, um, when you do an experimental test, we always find quantum mechanics is true right? So it's like, you can propose alternative theories. Um, but, uh, you know, quantum mechanics is extremely well tested in experiment. And, uh, you know, so, so the frustration is, you know, any idea you have um, of for a possible alternative gets ruled out pretty quickly, usually. So basically,
0: you're just trying to continuously test to find that thing, at least in your case, that proves that quantum mechanics but there's something yeah. else outside of quantum mechanics.
1: But, well, well, yeah, but you know, it's, it's also a question of you know, where, you, where you're going to look, right? So, so quantum mechanics or quantum theory in general, quantum theories in general, they're, they're, they're very well tested in laboratory experiments. All of our, well, most of our, our fundamental physical theories um, are based on quantum mechanics in one way or another. The, the exception is Einstein's general relativity, You know, you may be, you may have read stuff about the fact that, you know, general relativity hasn't been combined with quantum mechanics yet. Um, But, you know, most of our our fundamental physics, physical theories are based in quantum mechanics. So we know it works extremely well up to very, very high energies that we can get to in particle colliders. Um, You know, everything that we can, that we have access to has basically confirmed quantum mechanics. So, you know, if you try and propose an alternative to quantum mechanics and then you sort of expect that uh, you're going to try and test it in a on a on a tabletop with some lasers and some optical equipment it's very unlikely that you're going to see anything other than quantum mechanics because if quantum mechanics breaks down it's somewhere where we haven't where we haven't really looked before maybe even the very early universe maybe um in, in systems that are sufficiently large, contain a large number of uh, quantum quantum systems, um, you know, things like that. So, you know, it's, it's very hard to, uh, you know, you have to come up with a specific proposal for not just quantum mechanics breaks down, here's an alternative, but, um, you know, where where is it likely or feasible that this could happen? Um, so, you know it's it's very it's very tough to try and find an alternative to quantum mechanics at this stage so that, that's why i am saying you know we have a lot of uh, we know you know that you might think okay well um you know just to give an example maybe there is sort of an underlying reality which doesn't have probabilities in it let's you know make make some you know make some some list of assumptions about what reality might be like you you prove what the what the predictions would be for such a theory? You compare it with quantum mechanics, then you can go out and do an experiment, right? So we have lots of lots of results like that, which tell us that you know really some of the weird features of quantum mechanics are you know are really there to a high degree of precision, and um, sort of, And then the question is, you know, well, how do we understand that? <laughs> and 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 this is the second part that that we um, that there's not really any agreement on. The first part, you know, we've actually made an awful lot of progress. We've done a lot, you know, an awful lot more experiments. We know an lot, awful lot more constraints on what the nature of reality must be like. Um, so there has been progress, but you know, it's, it's uh, negative progress, if you will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I think I'm starting to get it now. Like looking at, at that world, like in the probabilities, like when we were starting to unpack back there you're going into well if you believe that things don't exist until you see them then you kind of can't believe in the this idea of a multi-worlds or you know multiple universes because you'd have to see them into existence right yeah i mean uh,
1: the thing is that you know none of these things are assumptions of the theory if you like right so when, when you're building when you're building an interpretation of quantum mechanics you start from some assumptions and those assumptions are usually fairly reasonable from a scientific point of view uh, sounding assumptions. And then you end up deriving the crazy, right? So you (laughs) you start with things that sound reasonable. So to take the example of the many worlds theory, the many worlds theory doesn't start by saying, well, assume there are many worlds. It starts by assuming, okay, well, the theory of quantum mechanics, it gives us an equation. It gives it, there's this thing called the quantum state, sometimes also called the wave function, um, which evolves in time, according to an equation, just like like in classical physics, you have states evolving according to an equation, which tells you what's gonna happen in the future. And then in comes this concept of measurement, and then you say, well, when I make a measurement, there's this weird probabilistic thing that happens. And the many worlds theory starts by saying, well, let's just throw out all of that stuff about measurements, right? Let's just say that the theory is about this thing, this wave function evolving in time, and that's it. That's the entire theory. Um, and then when you've thrown out the measurement, the postulates about measurement, because you know the reason for doing that is of course, the idea of having the concept of measurement as a fundamental primitive in a physical theory is a bit odd. You know, Physical theories usually tell us about what exists, what exists and how does it behave? And the concept of measurement is something that's a bit anthropocentric that we've sort of put on top of it, right? This, this physical device here is a, measure, is a measurement, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really seem to have a place in fundamental physics. So in the many worlds theory, say you say you throw out all that stuff about measurement and then you end up deriving, well, that means that there must be multiple universes. Multiple worlds, right? So the, the start point i to get at is the starting signs are much more sort of reasonable and rational sounding, and then you derive something crazy. And you know, that's that's true for sort of all of these approaches, right? And you know, in some ways that's not unusual in physics, right? Because you know, if you think about Einstein's relativity, I don't know how much you know about that. But you know Einstein's relativity starts from uh, reasonable reasonable postulates. There are two of them. One is that um, physics looks the same regardless of how fast you're moving. Right. So you probably had the experience. You know, if you're if you're on a train and the train is going along at some speed, so constant speed. You know, if you throw a ball up in the train, it'll land back on your hand, Right. It doesn't. You know, it doesn't feel the fact that you're going at a very fast speed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You might expect, if you think about it naively, that the ball should go you know, back over your head, but it doesn't.
0: Well, it's like watching any other event from outside the train as well. Nothing is right. moving any faster or different because you're viewing it as you're moving so, 80 miles per hour. So
1: the laws, of, the laws of physics don't care what speed you're going at. That's, yeah. that's the postulate number one. And number two is that, however, um, the speed of light is the same. Regardless of what speed you 're going at, so you might have thought that you know if if I shoot a, a laser a laser beam um, standing here and you 're on a train going by me that you would see the laser beam going slower than the speed of light because you 're catching up with it but Einstein says that 's not true, and the reason why he says that 's not true is because we had the equations of that lighter base called maxwell 's equations we have the the science of electromagnetism. And in the science of electromagnetism, you derive what is the speed of um, electromagnetic waves. Light is a kind of electromagnetic wave. And you derive that and it tells you there's this number, three times 10 to the minus, three times 10 to the power eight meters per second, very, very fast. And that uh, number doesn't seem to depend on what velocity you're, you're going at. So this was a big puzzle around Einstein's time. And Einstein just said, well, let's just make both of those things true. Physics doesn't depend on what speed you're going at, and the speed of light is the same according to everybody. And you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Seems to not make any sense, they seem to contradict each other. But the, the resolution was to say, well, actually, you were wrong about the nature of space and time. If we change, so you're not, you know, normally in Newtonian physics, we think of like space and time as two separate things, and space is fixed, you know, the distance between two points is always the same, doesn't depend on how fast you're moving and things like that. Um, and Einstein managed to show that, well, if you assume these two postulates, then the way to make them consistent is to say, well, actually you are wrong about the nature of space and time, right? So if you're going on the train, then you will see the distance between, you'll see the length of an object. If I'm holding, if I'm holding a ruler, and you come past me on a train at a very, very fast speed, it'll look shorter to you than it does to me. And uh, that idea that we change the nature of space and time allows us to have those things be consistent. So, you know, this is, this is a pattern here, right? We start with scientifically reasonable hypotheses, like the idea that, that um, physics doesn't depend on what speed you're going at, that's something that we can experience. We, we, you know, it's an, it's an empirical fact. And the fact that the equations of that govern light tell us that the speed of light is always the same, that's a fact that comes from the theory. So those are both reasonable facts. Mm-hmm. So we start with reasonable facts and then we derive the crazy. <laughs> we derive <laughs> the crazy. So, you know, the, the various interpretations of quantum mechanics are, are a bit like this, right? You know, it's, it's not that we're, you know, a bunch of... Um, weed-smoking hippies who like to uh, consider, like, the craziest uh, things about reality. I mean, some of us might be, but, uh, but you know, we, we, look at, we look at what our theories are telling us. We say, okay, well, here are what seem to be scientifically reasonable hypotheses to make about it. They seem a little bit contradictory. Um, let's see what has to happen to make them true, and then you end up deriving crazy-sounding things like multiple worlds.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: But the difference between quantum mechanics and relativity is that in relativity we know what the correct reasonable hypotheses to make are. And so we know what the correct crazy conclusions are. In quantum mechanics we have multiple different alternatives and uh, no agreement about which one's right. So so the crazy stuff that you derive um, is just sort of dependent on of your starting point, and, and people are sort of fundamentally disagreeing what the theory is really about. And that, that, was,
0: <laughs> that no that is all fantastic. It's just like unpacking, 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 in the midst of a in a podcast. Um, yes. So, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, this is all amazing. Um, in terms of Einstein's uh, work, and you know, and I would say unpacking the different theories. Um, you know, that's an interesting one about physics being the same at whatever whatever speed light is moving, or light is always moving. Whatever, whatever speed you're going at. Whatever physics. your speed is going. Okay. That physics or determinism physics, Newtonian physics, stays the same. But once you yeah, get out,
1: quantum mechanics does I mean, quantum mechanics do too, we do have relativistic versions of quantum mechanics, which are compatible with Einstein. What that means though is that when we look at the predictions, so when we predict when we look at you know, the formalism of quantum mechanics allows us to make predictions for what's going to happen in an experiment. Mm -hmm. We we get a probability at the end of the day. And if you look at those probabilities, they won't allow you to tell how fast you're going, right? Um, So those, you know, the things that we can actually predict from quantum mechanics won't won't allow you to to determine, um, you know, let's say that you're going at, 10 miles an hour and I'm stationary here. There's no no sort of preferred speed. Um, The question is just whether whatever whatever underlying quantum mechanics, whatever underlies those predictions also obeys that, right? And so there's disagreement about that. Um, And this has, you know, this is the issue of uh, whether there's non-locality in in quantum mechanics and gets us into Bell's theorems and things Mm. like that. so I think
0: another thing to uh, be unpacking like more things that, you know, you guys get to look at a quantum in quantum mechanics. Um, so as a my understanding, not until 2015, that black holes were still a theories. And until we could read those certain waves that were emitted, when those two black holes collided, were we able to actually say that, you know, actually see a black hole or understand that it's real? It was still kind of a theory up until that point. Um, in I mean, terms of I mean, like what, how it's looked at and perceived in space, That we see I mean, that I mean, a black hole is there. And could we, be had, there. We, had, we had very good
1: evidence for the existence of black holes uh, prior to that, because um, you can basically tell um, you can basically tell how an object is gravitating, how the gravity of an object is working, by looking at how other objects uh, orbit it. Right? So we, we had pretty good evidence uh, for a long time that, for example, there were black holes at the center of galaxies. Um, what well, we didn't, so what, what that uh, what was detected in 2015 was gravitational waves. That's it. A- and gravitational waves uh, is a prediction of, of Einstein's uh, relativity. It says, general relativity, this is, so his theory of gravitation. Um, it says that you know gravity, well, it, it predicts that there are, there are gravity waves in in, in a similar sort of sense that in the electromagnetic field, there are waves, which, which are light waves, right? So, um, it predicts that, you know, if you have a violent gravitational event, like you know, a collision of two, <laughs> miles, that waves are going to, be, radiation is going to be emitted. Gravitational radiation is going to be emitted, but, you know, gravity is by far the the weakest force out of all of the there are four forces that we know about in, in nature. There's electromagnetic force, strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and then gravity. And gravity, it, you know, it, it seems a bit strange to say this because gravity is the force that you're most immediately aware of, right? Why are you sat in your seat now and not floating off into space is because of gravity. But if you think about it, it takes an object the size of the Earth, which is absolutely ginormous, just to keep you. Down in your chair, and you can actually pretty easily overcome that by you know, you can jump up in the air. The gravity is not so strong that it like that it, it it pulls you to Earth straight away. Whereas if you you know if you take a comb and you brush it through your hair, I have like the crazy Einstein hair right now because of the, I'm going for You brush a comb through your hair, it can pick up the electric the electric force can pick up small pieces of paper easily, right? So something small like a comb. Right, the electric force on that can overcome the gravitational force of the entire earth, if you think about it. So, so gravity is extremely weak, right? So if you have just two, you know, just two pieces, small pieces of paper, there's a gravitational pull between them, but you can't feel it. It's a tiny, mm-hmm. tiny, tiny force. Um, so uh, yeah. So the point is that um, gravitational waves similarly are going to require, in order to be able to detect them, are going to require like a really ginormous gravitational uh, event, right? That's where you need, you know, because it, it's it, the gravitational waves exist for all um, objects that are moving around, but they're so so tiny, right? So it was a, a massive technological achievement to be able to detect them at all, and uh, you know, very worthy of the Nobel Prize in 2015. And it it does, you know, so we're entering a sort of a new era where we can. Um, have evidence from gravitational waves as well as evidence from other more conventional things. So we can point a telescope at the area where the gravitational wave signals come from and look at radio waves, we can look in the optical spectrum and we can see the the same events happening um, in the sort of gravitational wave detection and in ordinary sort of optical optical astronomy, and this sort of gives us like a a good, it gives us sort of another way of looking at things. So that's one of the reasons why it's exciting, like in in astrophysics, whenever we've sort of opened up a new way of observing things, we've learned a lot more. So, you know, initially people only looked at things with telescopes, so we could only see light, but then we had, you know, radio radio wave astronomy, you know, microwave astronomy, and as, as, as you expanded the w- ways that you have of looking at things, you can see more, right? So, being able to detect gravitational waves is, although it's lots sort of very early days, it's very exciting because, um, you know, you, we typically learn more about the universe when we can look at it in different ways. And looking at it gravitationally is very, very different from looking at it um, in, op- in optical, electromagnetic ways so yeah so that was a very very exciting um thing that happened in 2015 um
0: yeah it's like we get to look at the universe and like different filters now like oh let's add this filter on top we can see this now and see this and see this and but i think uh for most people you know even the lay person that who i believe i am it's like you know and i think you went into this too but if you go into a little deeper you know like what about that understanding you know benefits people what about this understanding that you guys are working on your research you know actually transitions over into the real world and you know the world that we all live and enjoy
1: yeah so you know i have to say this is uh, okay this this next bit may sound a bit pretentious but um you know by and large i'm not too worried i'm not too bothered about that myself right so so you know as physicists, why do we just, why do we uh, study these things? We study them because they seem very interesting and they seem to be telling us something fundamental about the nature of the universe and our place in it and um, sort of so my, my, my knee jerk response to that is just that well, you know we want to know these things because you know that 's part of being human to try and understand the world ar- around us you know we, we, we want to know these things for the same reason as we you know, appreciate a, a music concert, right? It's like, mm. what, what benefit does that have? That doesn't have much practical benefit, but we see sort of beauty in it or whatever. Um, okay, so that's, that's I, but, but, you know, it, that's a bit of, that is a bit of a pretentious answer. I mean, in some sense, it's my real answer. But, um, you know, governments spend billions and billions of dollars on science every year. And they wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't uh, an economic and societal um, benefit. Now, when it it comes to like real sort of fundamental science, um, you have to understand the 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 game that's being played here. So the game is it's it's a very it's sort of a high risk, high reward gamble, right? So when you're doing fundamental physics or fundamental any science really, you're going to have hundreds and hundreds of people are studying it and they're all going to have different ideas and they're going to go and investigate them. And probably 99.99% of that is going to lead to absolutely nothing. Right? Mm-hmm. So lots of those ideas will just be wrong. And some of them, even if they're right, many of them, even if they're right, would just not be useful. It's like, well, you could in principle build a new type of refrigerator out of this technology. but uh, it would be a lot worse than current refrigeration. You know, so you find out things like this. So, so that, that's the game, you know, because you don't know what you're doing when you're doing fundamental sort of science. You don't know, you can't predict the future. So you just try, you just throw a lot of ideas against the wall. But then, you know, occasionally there's some idea comes along which really revolutionizes things. And, you know, the gamble that you're playing is that, you know, you hope that happens. And you know it has happened um, time and time again in the history of science, right? So when people discovered um, electromagnetic radiation and the rules of electromagnetism, nobody knew at the time that that would lead to the electronics revolution and that it would be the technology that underlies all of our communications and all of our uh, computers, modern day computers, right? So this is the kind of gamble that we're that we're playing. So. Um, when, you, when we're talking about the foundations of quantum mechanics, the specific things that I'm doing right now, um, what's the probability that will lead to anything practical? Very, 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 very extremely tiny, but I have uh, faith, or I, at least I think it's a rational <laughs> view to take, that if we have you know, a, a decent number of people doing these kinds of things, it will lead to, uh, lead to changes. In, in important changes in, mm. in technology and society now I, I guess what you were probably leading towards was talking about uh, quantum technologies um, and this is a re- this is kind of an interesting story right because it's an example of this right so quantum technologies quantum computing quantum information they're currently quite big news um, you know as far back as you know recent history, uh, in the early 90s, no, in the early 90s, there were you know, half a dozen people in the world who cared about this. And why were they studying it? Because they found that there were interesting questions about the fundamental nature of information, like what is information? And they were, they were interested in those questions. And so it was like really esoteric theoretical reasons that they were discussing these. And it's grown from that uh, sort of small seed into a huge thing that that currently, um, you know, there's currently many, many billions of dollars going into research in this area. So, you know, I view this as kind of like a success story for the foundations of quantum mechanics. Like people thought this was an esoteric area, but it has led to big things. The impact of which is, really not been felt yet because we're still a long way from from really practical technologies so you probably want to talk a bit about what that is and what it means um
0: well i think one of the big ones that's happened and come out is that um like at least quantum information or uh has been used in cryptography how big crypto and crypto cryptocurrency yeah. or even just the idea of cryptography, which is masking and creating so many probabilities, different chains or messages or passwords that can be sent out has so, been used a lot since that time.
1: So, so let's talk a, a little bit about cryptography, because that is one of the I mean, I think cryptography, it, even though it's not the whole of the subject, it is certainly one of the reasons why, um, you know, governments in particular have been very interested in it. Um, You know, there are national security implications to cryptographic technologies. So let's talk about this a little bit, right? So suppose, like the basic problem in in cryptography is, you know, say I want to send a message to you. I want to send it to you in such a way that anybody who intercepts the communication can't determine what the message is at all. But when you receive it, you can read it. Okay, that's the basic problem that we have in, in cryptography. And, um, you know, so the study of cryptography, I guess, starts in the 1940s. Well, you know, cryptography is a very old subject, but in terms of like formal mathematical studies, um, Claude Shannon, who's one of the founders of information theory, um, began studying this during the Second World War and published uh, very important papers on it. And he basically showed that it's impossible. Right. so he showed that, you know, it's impossible for me to send a message like, if, we, if, if you and I have never communicated in the past, it's impossible for me to send a message to you in such a way that nobody else could also decrypt it, right? So the only way we can do it is, when, when I say impossible, I mean, you know, let's assume that everybody in, the, everybody in the world knows the same stuff and that we don't have any limitations on how much computing power or whatever we have. So, so what do you do in the face of that? There's sort of two kinds of things you can do in the face of that. So one is we can imagine that we actually do share something. Okay, so let, let's share some secrets. Okay, so if you and I want to communicate, we could get together um, in a private room somewhere and we could, sh- we could share some information. Okay, so we could uh, take a bunch of coins and flip them right, and generate a string of heads and tails, very, very long string of heads and tails. And we do it together in a private room, we assume that nobody else has access to it. And then we go off, we go off on our own ways, and now we can use that string of, of a random string of heads and tails to communicate privately. Um, what do I do? Okay, well, I don't wanna get bogged down into too much details, but, you know, we can say, okay, well, heads equals zero, tails equals one. So let's convert that into a string of bits, zero, 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 one. It's a random string of bits. If I wanna send you a message, I can also convert that into a string of bits because you know, I just need, you know, I can convert any message into a number you know using ASCII and conversion or, or whatever. You know I can just assign a number to each letter of the alphabet from one to 26, convert that into binary. I make my message into one long binary string. And then what, I, what do I do? If I take the string of of heads and tails, and I flip flip the bit from zero to one and vice versa if it's a heads, and I do nothing if it's a tails. Well, you can see that if you do that, the thing that I end up sending to you is just a completely random string of zeros and ones. No, it contains no information about the message, because all the information about the message is in the correlations between the string I have sent to you and the string of heads and tails that we generated. And then you can dec- decrypt it. So th- this, I don't know if that explanation was very clear.
0: No it is, I'm impr- I have a good base of knowledge of how that happens and how people are trying to do that with banking and yeah, so, currencies. So this,
1: is, this is called the one time pad and it's like, the ba- it's, it's really the only method of, of secure communication that's what we call information theoretically secure. It means it's just secure, Regardless, you don't have to make any assumptions that you're, the eavesdropper has limited computing power or anything, like what anything they could do, they couldn't dec- decrypt this. And you know, in fact, this was used um, quite regularly in, uh, in for communications between spies um, during the Cold War. Um, there's quite an interesting story about this. It's sort of fascinating to me. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the history of number stations. Have you, have you heard no. of
0: this? No, what's this?
1: Um, so, you know, during, during the sort of Cold War year, there were these weird radio stations that would just come online for short periods of time. And you can find recordings of them on the internet. They're, they're really creepy. Um, <laughs> typically, they would, like, start with some electronic-sounding tune, and then it would just be a string of numbers generated by uh, a... An electronic machine with like a really creepy voice and in different languages so it would just be it would just be you know so the machine would go nine seven six five and these these radio stations would come online and they would broadcast this message and then they would go away and so of course these were a favorite topic of conspiracy theorists at the time what was going on well now we have a pretty good understanding from I don't want to go into too many details That but these were basically one-time pads. And if you, I don't know if you've watched the, the TV show, The Americans, at all. No, but I
0: know it's on FX. FX. Yeah, so they, they, they do this in,
1: in, in there. So they get, they get encrypted messages. So they have like a shortwave radio and they get out and you can hear the broadcast on the number stations and then they're decoding them. So what was happening was that spies were given books with huge, long, random strings of numbers in them. So they were generated randomly. And so at home base, they had this book and the spies had this book with them. And they had a small shortwave radio and they were tuning to these number stations. These number stations were broadcasting a seemingly random um, string of of numbers, but using the the key that they had in their book, they could decode the original message. And uh, we can, you know, there's much evidence that that's what they were. but one of the main reasons why we can tell that is because they pretty much disappeared. Um, they disappeared, you know, when the internet happened, and they disappeared, you know, largely when the Cold War ended. Um, so you know, there wasn't as much need for them. Um, anyway, so that, that was a bit of an aside. But the, the point of the story now is that um, okay. Um, so what can you do? Well, yeah, there's a problem with this, right? Because if you if you want to If you want to do a secure communication like this, it means that we have to get together at some point, right? Somehow you have to get this book of key to the spies out in the field, right? Mm. The most secure way of doing that is to have everybody gathered together in the same room and just generate the random numbers there. And then everybody goes off their separate ways. But what if you've got, you know, somebody who's in the field for, you know, decades, and they run out of secret key, it's going to be risky to to bring them in to do that. So the question is, is there a way of generating these random numbers in such a way that nobody else could know them? Only the two people who are communicating can know them. um, Without getting together. And uh, this is this is where sort of quantum mechanics comes in, because in classical physics, the answer is no. There's no way of doing that. That's basically what Shannon proved. You can't do it. But in quantum mechanics, we can. Um, uh, this is what we do in what's called quantum key distribution. So it turns out that by sending quantum systems, so if you have if if you have uh, a, what's called a quantum channel, so this is a you know it could be just well it's it just it's just a way of sending quantum systems. Uh, between two people, okay? So if you have if you have that ability, then um, you can generate this random string of numbers in such a way that if anybody else tried to read it along the way, then you would know, right? And so you could throw away that set of numbers, like we know we can't use that one because somebody else knows it, right? So this is a way, this is one of the applications, the main application in quantum cryptography, and it's actually, the quantum technology that's sort of um, closest to being practically usable today uh, for something actually potentially useful. So that's quantum cryptography. That's quantum key distribution. Um, and so obviously, um, having the ability to uh, share secret messages with with no way of with no possible way of breaking it is something that's a great interest to lots of people and and has also national security implications
0: no i imagine governments banks i mean if you can send something it. uh yeah know, one of the big ad- uh proponents of you know like the cryptocurrency which i'm familiar with is that oh it's supposed to be the safest and secure transaction but like you said it still needs to know that only one person has this set of key and the other person yeah. has the same set so of I, key. I, I, want, I want to talk a
1: little bit about the other way of doing this. You know, I have to say, it, the problem with it right now is it's slow, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're at the edge of what we can do with technology. And if you, you know, if you're trying to do this to secure your credit card transaction on Amazon, well, first of all, we don't have the quantum internet yet. But even if we did, even if, even if we had everybody connected by quantum channels, um, it's, it would be far too slow. It would be like worse a than big problem.
0: That's a big problem. Everybody complains with that.
1: Yeah, worse than going back to uh, dial-up uh, internet. So, <laughs> so that, that, you know, you, you can use it for some things and, and there's been successful demonstrations, right? So, you know, I, I would call these things sort of more demos than practical things, but, you know, several years ago, Switzerland, because Switzerland has one of the main players um, in this area, uh, uh, a company called ID Quantique. Um, they did a demonstration where they used it to secure... Uh, election voting. Um, so, you know, that, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> it was more of a demo than a, than a, than a real practical use. But you know, th- that, that technology is really beginning to get there. Uh, but let's talk about the other side of it. So the other side of it is, uh, okay, so most of us don't have the ability to like get together and generate these random keys. So, so what do we actually do in practice? We we uh, use what's called uh, computational security. So the previous one was called information theoretic security. So whatever an eavesdropper do, even the most powerful, compu- with even the most powerful computer devices un- unlimited computing ability, couldn't crack it. But uh, we can't do that because we can't all get together and share these keys. So we we use what's called computational security. So most cryptography, including Bitcoin cryptography is based on this idea of public key cryptography and the idea there is you try to come up with a mathematical problem that's easy to do one way and hard to do the other way okay so the the most the simplest example is factoring numbers right so if I tell you to multiply 27 times 36 well, okay, maybe I don't know if you can do it in your head, but it's a relatively quick calculation. Uh, <laughs> nine hundred. No, no, I'm okay.
0: off. I was <laughs> going for 30. <laughs> yeah, 30
1: if I say, if I say, if I say, you know, what's what's fifteen times three? Right, forty-five. Right, okay, you can, that you can do. But if I asked you, okay, what are the factors of fifty-eight? Right, what times what is fifty-eight? it takes you a lot longer to do, right? So you have the intuition that here's a problem that's easy, easier to do one way than it is to do the other way. Okay, so, um, and in fact, we, you can make this sort of more formal and say, well, let's try and make a computer do this. So if, if I take any two numbers and want to multiply them together, then I can do that on a computer efficiently. If I take a number and ask, what are its factors? Then the best computer algorithms that we know typically take a very, very, very long time. Okay. So, so the idea of public key uh, cryptography is that you have um, right. So so you have well. Okay. So 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 you have the idea is that okay. So you, you have two things, right? You have a public key and a private key, right? So I, so if you want to communicate to me, I will give you my public key, and the public key is something which is more, which is so sort of easy to compute. It's like uh, it's something that, that that's that's an easy that's an easy computation. Um, if you don't have the private key, then to decrypt that message, you need to do a computation which we think is hard, okay? Which would take a really long time, and you need this private key. So this private so the. So like the public key would be something like, take these two numbers, multiply them together, that, that, multiplication, that multiplied number is, is the public key. And the private key would be the two individual numbers. right? So it's easy, hard to determine the private key if you only know the public key. And it turns out that there, there are methods to use this to send secure messages, and um, which we think would be very, very hard to decrypt. Like you just would take longer than the age of the universe to run a computer algorithm to decrypt it. So that's the idea here. So, we, so it's not in principle impossible to decrypt the message. It's just that we think it would take far too many com- computational resources. And that's what most cryptography that we use or all cryptography that we use on say the internet and for Bitcoin is based on this kind of idea. Okay, so that's, that's, that's how it works. And now the fly in the ointment here is that we have this idea of a quantum computer and the quantum computer is a computer that operates according to the principles of quantum mechanics, um, right? It's just a computer that's made of quantum systems. We have these quantum bits called qubits and they interact and there's an algorithm which allows you to break many of these crypto systems. So the assumption that this that factoring numbers was hard is true seems seems to be true for classical computers but if you had a quantum computer you would be able to break it easily right so so you know the quantum technology has two sides to it so one is it does give us a method, method of doing a secure kind of cryptography but it also breaks much of the cryptography that we rely on today Right. So if we were able to build one of these full scale quantum computers, um, then we would have problems with uh, current crypto systems.
0: So they're they're going against each other or, you know, the push for one is going against the.
1: Well, well, the the push is for both at the same time, of course. Right. Because the one. Now, now, the other thing I have to say is that this is true of current. So, So one of the crypto systems that is used a lot is called RSA. RSA is the one that's based on factoring numbers. Um, That would definitely be broken, but another field of research that's uh, popped up in recent years is something called post-quantum cryptography. So this is the idea that you try and come up with public key cryptography systems that are not vulnerable to attacks by quantum computer. So several of these have been proposed. um, And so we think that there are probably Public crypto systems, just classical ones, which would be robust against quantum computers. Well, we don't know that for sure because you know one of the ways that cryptography research works is you know quite often you are unable to prove what you'd like to prove rigorously. Prove that it's very very hard to break RSA cryptography. You can't really come up with a proof of it. Yeah. What you do do though is you let. know hundreds and thousands of researchers loose on it and they try to decrypt they try very very hard to decrypt it over a number of years and the more times we fail to do it the more confident that you become that it really is a good method so post quantum crypto systems we we believe that there probably are classical crypto systems that are robust to quantum attacks but they haven't been around as long so um you know we don't know if they're really vulnerable to some very, very clever attack. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of a, a topic of, of current research. But it seems likely that by the time that we have quantum computers, things like RSA will be replaced by things that are secure against quantum computers without having to go to full-blown um, quantum cryptography. Um, this I can uh,
0: digest. This yeah. That
1: made sense. <laughs> so so um, but, however, you know, it's a funny. It's a funny. We're in a funny situation with this technology because um, it's. it's I, I find it okay. So you know, I don't want to digress too much on politics, but um, funding funding quantum technology is one of the very few scientific issues that has full bipartisan support in the United States. Right, mm. so. A year or two ago, um, Trump signed a bill called, I think it was called the quantum initiative, followed by sailed through con- Congress, provided billions of support for these technologies.
0: And that never happens.
1: It never happens with a scientific issue, right? Think about funding for climate change or vaccine <laughs> research or whatever, like these things are very, very controversial in the current situation, right? The, the, the sort of widespread, you know, Bipartisan support for every scientific issue just isn't there in general. But there's a few things for which it is, and and quantum technology is one of them. Um, So, you know, you have to to wonder why that's the case for this. And, uh, you know, the, the, the uses of the technology extend beyond cryptography. But you have to think that, as far as governments are concerned, as far as the US government's concerned, the national security part of it is important and also playing a major role in this is the fact that the Chinese government has decided to spend an awful lot, a lot of money on this area, Mm -hmm. okay? So we seem to be sort of transitioning from a period where this was sort of a usual scientific international cooperation type of topic to things are sort of starting to transition into a slightly more adversarial situation. Most scientists don't want this to be the case, but it is nonetheless the case that uh, Chinese scientists who are hoping to come here to the US, US who have expertise in this area are now finding it hard to get visas to come. And uh, the US government is looking um, hard at people, but FBI and CIA and organizations like that are beginning to look at people who have ties to research uh, institutes in China. That's just happening, right? So whether whether we like it as scientists or not, um, that's this is the kind of attitude that's being taken here towards this technology. And and there is one fear, there's one thing which I would say is a reasonable fear, which is that although um, we will probably have changed to more secure crypto systems by the time we get a quantum computer, um, there's historical data, right? So You know, we know from the Snowden revelations, for instance, that the US government likes to collect the NSA likes to collect massive amounts of data. And you can assume that the Chinese government also collects massive amounts of data. You know, so there might be a a store of encrypted email communications somewhere on a server that someone has that they can't decrypt. Right. From today. Right. Say when we're still using RSA encryption and in a couple of decades maybe we'll have a quantum computer and suddenly they'll be able to decrypt that stuff. So you know although it might be sort of a second order worry you know you do worry like maybe there are some say dissidents in China who are <coughs> using encrypted email technology and maybe in 20 years time the government will be able to de- decrypt those um, and so I'd say you know there is a legitimate concern about that sort of thing, and and as scientists working on this, we have to, you know, start considering very carefully what are the ethics of of doing this kind of work, and we, we should be thinking harder about sort of ethical frameworks for the research we're doing, especially as it relates to cryptography and national security, because I just don't think that we're going to go back to a time where this is all happy international cooperation, right? But the U.S. government, the Chinese government, don't seem to don't seem to want to go there. So the reality yeah. the reality is there are going to be restrictions. There are going to be, um, you know, problems. There's going to be a certain amount of adversarial competition in it. And uh, you know, as scientists, how should we ethically deal with that? I think that's something that we, you know, are only just beginning to think
0: about no it's crazy i mean i think about it immediately when you talk about this is when we think about the an arms race or you know any r&d that goes yeah. towards you know the defense and you think you know just uh the race for the atomic weapon and yeah. the atom yeah. bomb and you know the the physicists getting in the way were saying like hey you know morally justified was it oppenheimer constantly going with the uh what was his name the one of the head of the defense departments and he was just going back and forth with them back and forth them we can't
1: this yeah. is Well, I mean, I think in physics especially, like anybody who's read the history of the Manhattan Project, anything about it, you know, the idea that scientists are sort of morally neutral and it's like, we just do the science and everybody else worries about how it's used. The history of that project should show anybody that that's not the case, that's not viable. So I think physicists more than anybody else and you know, given the role in atomic record, uh, weapons should be sensitive to these kinds of issues, even if the risk is like fairly low, we should be sensitive. Um, but, you know, I'm in two minds about this. It's not clear, like there are, t- there are two sort of big examples that you have in mind. You have the the, the Manhattan Project, of course, but also the space race, right? So the, the two the two are kind of different. The Manhattan Project was, you know, an issue of immediate Emergency and military application, the space race was kind of like a race for prestige. So who's going to get to the moon first? America or Russia? Does it really matter to the future of our military survival? Who does it? No, it's a matter of national prestige.
0: Right. So I think I think
1: a lot of people are arguing that um, you know, China versus the US in quantum technology is something more like the space race. It's a bit different because. Um, you know, the space race was done almost entirely by governments, whereas in quantum technology these days, private industry is a very, very big player, right? So you have, you know, companies like Google and IBM and even Alibaba in, in, in China involved in this. Um, so it's slightly different, but I think most people think, well, the risk that this is going to have a major national security application is actually pretty low. And it's more a question of, you know, it's a race for prestige. And certainly China, you know, there's an argument for that. I mean, certainly China has decided in recent years to try and become much more prestigious in the scientific realm, right? So, you know, decade or two ago, most Chinese research was not of the greatest quality, should we say, right? So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to cast aspersions but if you found a scientific paper published uh, say a decade or two ago which had all Chinese authors from all Chinese institutions it was a good indicator that it wasn't going to be very high quality mm-hmm. just because you know the Chinese government wasn't funding things appropriately and and you know Chinese scientists had a very hard time doing good work um, but they've changed their attitude massively they they're now trying to Yeah, it's a matter of national prestige to have good science. And also, you know, since China is basically the manufacturing zone of the world now, um, you know, previously they were operating in the mode where, you know, they took intellectual property, they took designs and science, which had been come up with in other places, and then manufactured it. But it obviously makes a great deal of sense for them to own um, also, the intellectual property on in which these things are based, mm-hmm. so the race for dominance in quantum computing um, can de- is definitely part of this, and the fact that the Chinese government has decided to uh, put a lot of money into scientific research now um, is you know part of it it 's a play for national prestige it 's all of these things now, there is this national security implication as well, so you know i don 't think that we should completely dismiss that. So, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, this isn't exactly the Manhattan Project or the Space yeah. Race. <laughs> Way uh, more Space Race.
0: It's, it's, it a
1: bit, it's a bit closer to the Space Race with a little bit of, with a little bit of uh, Manhattan Project in it. Um, you know, and so, you know, I think that because people think it's more like the Space Race, you know, a lot of scientific organizations have made calls for continuing International cooperation in this area, in the face of what's happening now, um, I think it's a little bit naive to expect that governments are just going to, uh, you know, roll over and agree with that, because you know the national security argument is an argument that's been made, and it's you know like either the scientific community has overhyped uh, the uses of quantum in technology in, in cryptography. In which case the governments are going to be angry with us for wasting money on it, or we haven't overhyped it and it's a real concern. I think it's the latter, personally, mm-hmm. um, and so I, you know I don't think that I just, I just don't think that things are going to go back to 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 the way they were, and it's something that we have to deal with. Um, so you know as far as what what the everyday person should be aware of about quantum technology. If you're interested in cryptography at all, um, and the issues issues like privacy and security, um, it's something to be aware of, this is coming, right? It's coming, whether it's coming, probably not coming tomorrow, but it's coming within within the next couple of decades.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think if you're an American and uh, you actually care about, you know, security, privacy, freedom, so to say, you know, you really uh, follow those Bill of Rights, especially that First and Fourth Amendment, you know, to understand, you know, search and seizure, understanding what can be owned, what can be seen, and what can be divulged to, you know, your government or your authority. Those are definitely things you should be interested in and going into because it's like an evolution of, you know, those original rights, you know, the right to privacy, the right, too, we have a right to privacy, but, you know, um, right to free speech, the right to uh, search and seizure, um, you know, and, this is where it's evolving and moving towards you know and it's of all places moving on the quantum mechanic level into yeah. cryptography
1: and we should certainly i mean although you know arguably the implementation of rights and freedoms in in the usa is not perfect i don't think anybody would argue that it's perfect yeah but we should we should definitely be concerned about whether um, the major technologies and discoveries happen first in a country like the us which has those Kinds of uh, freedoms, or whether it happens first in a country which is largely authoritarian and which does not grant its citizens those kinds of rights and freedoms, and I think, you know, that's something that, you know, that as scientists we should be concerned about. So, you know, I'm not say I don't want to say, you know, I, I have many colleagues who, who collaborate uh, with with scientists in China and internationally. I, I'm not trying to tell anybody, oh, uh, you know that this has to go this has to this whole area of research now has to go on lockdown what i am saying though is that we need to think about the ethical frameworks for how we go about maintaining a global approach to to the science um while taking these issues, these kinds of issues into account
0: that's- Matt, no no that that's all fantastic um and i wanted to thank you for coming on the show i definitely hope to have you back and i hope uh you know, I myself gonna go back, unpack, and listen to all this stuff again, <laughs> go back through all your notes and stuff. And whoever's listening, um, please let them know where they can, uh, you know, see all your information, have good places to research, find things. I know you mentioned a few of those things would be on your website. But um, if you can go ahead and uh, let people know a little bit more about where they can connect with you and see some yeah. of this information.
1: Okay, well, first of all, thanks very much for having me today. Um, yeah, so my website is uh, mattliefer.info. That's mattleife info. Um, I'm on Twitter at Matt Leifer um, and Facebook. I believe it's uh, Matt Leifer on Facebook too. Um, so you can connect with me in those places. Um, also, if you're interested in, in the uh, website I have about um, helping with COVID research, that's called docovidresearch.org. And
0: I'll make sure I have a link to those all in the bios in there um thank you again for tuning in and thank you for joining me on the show looking forward to having you back definitely will be a return guest and everybody who's watching this live stream thanks so much for tuning in Go ahead, subscribe to To the channel. We have another show coming up in uh, about 30, 45 minutes. I'm going to go get ready for that one. And if you're watching this at a later time, thanks for so much for tuning in. Thanks so much. And if you want to support the show, there's plenty of ways to do that. If you want to support it, just keep watching and uh, suggest more amazing and very cool guests to have on the show. Um, And that's about it. Matt, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for watching. Have a great day.
1: Uh, uh, and uh, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. This is the moment uh, for those who.